Hello, and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we are here to celebrate 1989's James Bond film, License to Kill, with a very special guest this week. Cam, who do we have joining us? Yes, we are joined by actor, singer, and director Robert Davi, who of course played Sanchez in License to Kill, but is also known for credits such as Die Hard, Showgirls, Predator 2, The Goonies, the list goes on and on. Yes, Cam, I guess it's time to start cutting overheads. Roll the interview. Joining us now on the show, the one, the only, Mr. Robert Davi. Hello, sir. How are you today? Hello, sir, and good to see you. Speed you and all of that. It's wonderful to be here, I must say. You, you make a you make British accent sound better when you do it. I think to be fair, so can you? I don't. I don't. Can I what? Can I... There you go. Just do the rest of the episode with that. We'll. Uh... <laughs> I, I, when once I get warmed up and un, uh, inspired, I perhaps will change into some other kind of accent. <laughs> but right now, it, it makes me suffices me to to feel a little bit like I'm in the the kingdom. You know, mm, mm, quite. Since you're in. One's in BC and one's in in uh, London. One thing about you is I've listened to a lot of interviews with you, and you are incredibly good at accents and imitations. And I feel like you don't get to do that enough in your work. You have such a talent for it. Yes, because I'm underestimated. They thought I was mm-hmm. just a bad guy. Like that little song by that girl that sings it with her brother Phineas. Mm-hmm. Bad guy. You know the bad guy song? Yes, yes they thought I was just a bad guy. Didn't realize that <laughs> underneath it all was this Shakespearean actor that had training and <laughs> everything else, you see. That I used to look up to Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole and Laurence Olivier and John Gielgud and Ralph Richardson and one of the great, wonderful actors of England of yesteryear. Well, I, I can't say I'm embodying any of those, but uh, I'll give it a try today at least for you. Um, The first question I have for you, Robert, and sort of speaking of the sort of early days of acting with you, is what inspired you to want to become an actor in the first place? Alec Guinness. Mm. No, uh, many, many different people from watching the old films on the black and white television screen at home with my mother, watching these wonderful pictures, Charles Lawton, the black and white films of the 40s and 30s and 50s that screened across in the 60s. They played them in America. And Marlon Brando and, uh, you know, Anthony Quinn and all the great actors. Humphrey Bogart. Here's looking at you, kid. I used to watch Humphrey Bogart films. Who didn't want to be in a Humphrey Bogart movie? She wore blue, the Germans wore gray. Play it, Sam. I said, play it. If she can take it, so can I. And that's why I wanted to become a thespian. And I always liked language. Mm. Even in school, I enjoyed language. I liked playing around with language, and I liked reading aloud in school. Poetry. Where's this from? One Christmas was so much like another in those days around the Sea Town corner now. And out of all sound except for the distant speaking of voices I sometimes hear a moment before sleep. That I can never remember whether it's snowed for six days and six nights when I was 12, or whether it's snowed for 12 days. 12 nights when I was six. Come on, who knows what it is? I'm looking at Cam, the English major in the room right now for the answer. Cam? I, oh God, <laughs> I'm racking my brain. It, 
It's not Dickens, is it? You're going to have to do a contest. <laughs> and anyone can, can remember or find out where that quote is from. And I may throw subsequent quotes out, and we can have a contest. Ooh, I a like A twittering this. contest on guess the quote. We will get Twitter involved in that, no doubt whatsoever. And All right, would that be fun? Oh, it will be. And I, I suppose following on from those wonderful examples you gave there. So I'm not going to tell you who it's from. No, no, no. But I know, I know very well who it's from. I'll tell you off the air, but you can't tell it. I'll jot it down, but no spoilers, no spoilers, no spoilers. On the other side of the coin, when you're sort of your formative years looking at films, spy movies. We talk about spy movies every week here on Spy Hearts. Bond films, spy movies, were they something that interested you growing up? Wasn't uh, Casablanca one of the best spy movies of all time? Certainly was. You think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Most romantic and early on. And as a matter of fact, Cubby Broccoli did a lot of these films about men, manly men doing manly things in the 40s and 50s in England. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of those uh, battle movies and espionage. And it was always, you know, va- what is it, Passage to Marseille. And uh, all these great, you know, uh, political thrillers and espionage and spy movies. The Third Man, mm-hmm. Orson Welles, the great Orson Welles doing that, you know, where he talks about the cuckoo clock. You know that quote? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know that quote? Yep. Yep. What is the quote? Say it. Oh, my God. I can't recite the quote. You see, I'm not an actor. I can't <laughs> memorize these things, but it's about... Um... Just say what it's about. Paraphrase it. Go on. Okay. So he's comparing two countries, and he says basically one country yes. had like brotherly love for an extended period of time, and all they manufactured was the cuckoo clock. Okay, you got the answer. Yes, the Borgias had yeah. this, that, the other thing, blah blah blah, and they created blah 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 blah. And then the other country had brotherly love, this, that, and the other thing. And what are they known for? The cuckoo clock. So yes. it's very funny. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so all those. Yes, I was always. Uh, and then of course, when the Bond films came on the screen, and JFK talked about His Majesty's Secret Service, I think, or uh, one of the books he mentioned early on in the early '60s. And everyone went out. I had a baseball coach. His name was Ed Kirkman. He was a a crime reporter for the Daily News in New York. And he had said to us, you got to read these Bond films. They're terrific. And then uh, a Bond books. And then, of course, Dr. No came out. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a, a time for Bond. Mm-hmm. Not a no time. No time to die. A time for Bond. <laughs> Very different era to now when it comes to Bond films, for sure. And if you could keep, uh, if you could keep grilling Cam for the rest of the episode as well, I'd very much enjoy that. Just yeah, keep yeah. him on his toes. <laughs> keep keep Cammy on the toes. All right. Um, I suppose I I feel like I'm doing a disservice by jumping ahead all the way to License to Kill, but I, I think for the terms of spy movies, that's what people want to hear about. Oh, okay. With with and we'll get around to some of the other films afterwards, I think. But like with License to Kill, you'd seen some Bond films, you'd read some Bond books growing up. How did that connection to the film itself come about for you in nineteen eighty eight, I would suppose? Yes, eighty eight, eighty nine. Well, first off, when we watched the first Bond film, there was always the first credit was Albert R. Broccoli presents. Bam bam and you saw that and it was like, Who's this Albert R. Broccoli? And as a little guy I always thought, Albert R. Broccoli. You know, and now, later on in years, I find out that he was born in Astoria, Queens, where I was born. Italian family, grew up on Long Island, 
not far from where family members of mine and myself grew up. So we ha I had a, a, a certain kind of quiet pride about the Broccoli and the, the Bond franchise. Um, and I had done a, um, I was supposed to do, I've told this story before, but I was supposed to do, uh, it's a long story short, I was supposed to do the second Rambo and then the third Rambo and they didn't happen, but because of the third Rambo, and I was, I learned Pashtu, Sly had said, learn Pashtu, I want you to play the Afghan rebel leader, interesting character. So I then started to learn Pashtu and started to uh, get that accent going. Uh, and uh, it didn't happen uh, for various reasons. And uh, I did a film called Terrorist on Trial, the United States of America versus Salim Ajami, where I played a Palestinian kidnapped by the United States government to stand trial for acts of terrorism. Now, I'm an Italian Catholic from New York who knew nothing about this world, but I course, immersed myself in it and studied. And it was a courtroom drama that Alan Dershowitz was the technical advisor of. Sam Waterston, who had won an Oscar for The Killing Field, was the prosecutor. And Ron Liebman, who ran for, for Norma Ray, another great actor, and myself. And um, did this film. And uh, just prior to that, in Beverly Hills at Cafe Roma, I met uh, Tina Bonta, who is Cubby Broccoli's daughter. Mm -hmm. And she was a huge Goonies fan. Right. I love Goonies and and huge Goonies fan. And uh, she says, you got to meet my father. My father will love you. You have to meet him. I have to set up a dinner. So she did. I met her mother and father, her stepmother and her father, at the Bistro Gardens in Beverly Hills at the time. And he, Cubby and I got along famously. And great guy. And uh, cut to now, a year or two later, this movie is coming out, Terrorist on Trial. And I'm getting very strong reviews for my performance in it. Mm -hmm. And um, Cubby gets a phone call from Richard Maybaum. Richard Maybaum says, Cubby, put on Channel 2. Cubby says, I've got it on. He goes, that's the next Bond villain. Hmm. And Cubby said, I, I think so too. And they called me in the next day. And it was that week that I met with Cubby and Michael Wilson and I think John Glenn. And they told me, well, the script's not fully written yet but you're going to be the new Bond villain. And you're going to hear a lot of noise around town because every agency and every other person is going to want to put their hat in the ring. She says, but you're, you're going to be our choice. And that was it. No reading, no nothing, just a meeting with them. And then, of course, uh, the coherent meeting between me and Tim, or the necessary meeting, of course, to get that imperata. So Tim and I had lunch later on, and we hit it off and could tell right away. We discussed the... Casino Real and the reality of Bond and wanting to get back to that essence where Bond and the villain were mirror images of each other. And um, that was a, uh, a nice, uh, that, that, that was pleasant for me. And uh, Michael Wilson uh, recommended a book called The Underground Empire, and, uh, which was about the drug world at that time. And don't forget Ochoa and Escobar and uh, Carlos Leder were all in the news. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then I started to do the research for the next six, seven, eight months before we started to start to shoot, meeting with people from Colombia and distilling. They didn't want a heavy a accent, which I, so I just toned it down a bit and give a, a flavor of that. And uh, hence uh, the Sanchez was, was uh, born. When you were approached about playing a Bond villain, 
was there like the expectation initially that typically Bond villains tend to be a little broader, a little more arch? Was that what kind of what you were expecting before you wound up with something that was a little more grounded? I had no um, preconceived notion beyond the fact that I know the performance I gave is the, in the Palestinian, and I was known for being extremely believable. That mm. if they wanted me, they would see. There were other actors that they would want that would have given a broader performance, perhaps, mm. but they wanted something that was a bit different and uh, more groundbreaking at that time. And really, uh, so yeah, I, I had never thought of that. I, I thought I don't think of a character. Oh, I got to be broad now. Mm. If it, 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 it's it's inherent in the it, the character gives it to you, right? The character gives it to you in a circumstance. And especially since, see, the only, the only note I really gave myself is Sanchez is Bond. Mm. If Sanchez was Bond, uh, you know, that, that was, a, you know, and uh, that, that was, a, and, and interestingly, <clears throat> they asked me to uh, pick the girl, my girlfriend. Mm. And um, they said, we don't want you to do Sanchez because that would put you on the spot so to speak, and I didn't, and I, 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 they said, we want you to play Bond with 16, 17 actresses and models from around the world. And I said, well, that's not a bad thing to do. <laughs> I picked my own girlfriend, which I then did. And uh, I got to do, I got Bond out of my system because I think everyone looks in the mirror and goes, Bond, James Bond. And I did that for... 17 times, and Cubby and James uh, and, and John Glenn, the great John Glenn, uh, he and I hit it off famously in in, in the, our meeting, initial meetings as well. And um, the um, they said, I remember John going, you know, Cubby, Robert would make a terrific Bond. And Cubby goes, I think so too. And this is my <laughs> this is my Bond. Go say hi, 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 hi. <laughs> that's my little girl that's my little my baby daughter one of my one of my eight kids anyway well you you're mentioning the the casting i actually had a question queued up for later about that but it segues in beautifully how did you find that whole process 17 people you had to sort of cast with and you're playing bond in that that's a lot of pressure for you to find the right person because this you're making a career a lot of the time with with the casting it's down to you to help get that performance out of the actor for them to come across well on the screen how was finding that and, and sort of doing that role i had one criteria for myself who would bond who would bond who would sanchez not bond who would sanchez risk his life for mm. and that was talisa mm. of all the girls they had great girls that maybe Perhaps I had a better, because I like blonde, blue-eyed girls. That's just been my prototype in life because I'm so dark and I like, but I says, who would Sanchez, not who would Robert Dobby would like. And Talisa was the one and she came in and she had uh, a, a youthful, uh, a youthful ingenue uh, enthusiasm. And uh, I thought that would be uh, someone, uh, and they were terrific actresses uh, all on board. But Talisa had that something. And I said to them, they go, who do you think I think? Talisa Soto. And she's the one that came in with that dress that they gave to Pam Bouvier, by the way, later on in the film, in the elevator, when oh. she takes off the bottom of her dress oh. and there's a gun. That was, Talisa wore that 
dress in the casting. And they got the idea from that. Well, there you go. So when you're like, you know, essentially picking her for the role, does that sort of like relationship carry on through the course of shooting the movie? Like, do you feel a sense of like, I think, you know, acting is collaborative just by nature, but like, is there an extra sense of like wanting to get the best out of her in every scene you two have together? Of course. Well, that's with any actor, mm. whether you're helping yeah. the casting, anytime you're in a film or a movie or whether it's good, bad, indifferent, or, you know, you don't want to talk about it. You're always trying to get, make everybody around you and yourself look as good as you can in the given circumstances, you know? So there was no extra, Oh, I have to, no, no. And then John Glenn being a great director of actors wanted everybody to shine. So he is able to, to do that. But what I did do is with Talisa and Benicio and my crew, I kept them very close to me in terms of, and also living part of the relationships and the, and the, uh, uh, the bravura or the, the power of Sanchez mm. when we would go out at night for dinner or someplace. I, I liked keeping that on low burn just to keep that, you know, even with uh, Heller, mm. Max Heller. Yeah. With um, Don Stroud. Yeah, Don Stroud. I remember we were in Key West. I hadn't met Don yet. And uh, we called him. I, well, I'm in my hotel room with Benicio. And we're took, hanging out, you know, just doing our thing. And um, I said, uh, Don Stroud's here. I said, let's call Don Stroud. He said, but he just got here. I said, I don't care. Let's call him up. Let's. Uh, so I had the front desk call him up and say, please come to the director's room at 417, wherever we were at. I said, it was mine. He wants to see you right away. Now, Stroud was already hitting the bottle. He was happy. He wasn't ready. <laughs> and I guess he had a wanted to wear a piece for the for the film, you know, for the character. So he knocks on the door. He comes, you know, 20 minutes later in a, you could tell he's disheveled and, and the, and the hair piece is like this. And, <laughs> you know, he's he comes in and he sees, he's, <laughs> I have, I left the door, I've come in and uh, I'm there on the couch and Benicia sitting on the chair. Hello there. <laughs> it was, he immediately went from, from this, Son of a, and uh, <laughs> it was a very funny moment. And then we we would do a lot of practical jokes on the whole set all the time. I am. Um, I was going to ask you also about practical jokes, but I had one more question about that casting. More of a thought exercise, really. You say you you were playing Bond with the casting. Just say, for instance, something happened. Timothy couldn't do it, and they asked you to step into the role of Bond for the film. Who would you want to cast as Sanchez across from you if you were playing Bond in License to Kill? Well, I, 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 I don't know. It's a very good question in terms of that kind of a thing. Timothy Dalton. <laughs> I would watch that movie. I would watch that movie. Tim, Timothy playing with the iguana, that would be interesting. <laughs> right. <laughs> Why not? Why not? No, no, there's, you know, there's quite a few different actors that one could, could choose, I guess. Um, but, uh, yeah. It's tough when the role of Sanchez, and, I, and I've not said it, but it, there's a reason why it's one of my favorite villains in the, in the Bond series. And this, it's down to you, the, the ineffable quality that you bring to the role. So I think by losing you, it's kind of hard to think of what could be Sanchez. Cause I think a lot of it comes from Robert Dabby. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, perhaps, perhaps yes. I mean, you know, that that's with any character, mm. as you see the difference in bonds over the years. What's inherent in Sean Connery isn't necessarily in Roger Moore, isn't necessarily in Lazenby, or isn't necessarily in Timothy Dalton or Pierce or Daniel Craig. Mm. I always call Timothy the father of Daniel Craig, by the way. Oh, for sure. He, he walked yeah. so Daniel yeah. could run through walls. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the book that Michael Wilson gave you to read. Did you do any other sort of research to prepare for Sanchez? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, much, much. Yeah, I met with people from Colombia, from Medellin. I met the man who actually uh, designed the house, one of uh, Escobar's homes. Oh, wow. I met him in Beverly Hills, an architect. Yeah, so I did, who was from Colombia? So I, I met quite a few different people. And when I researched... I try to, you know, find the world. And you can usually in Hollywood and Beverly Hills find anything lurking about. <laughs> and there's so much energy coming from, like, I know they've talked about the influence of Yojimbo or Fistful of Dollars, whichever one you prefer. I was just curious, was that something that was, like, talked about on set or you were looking at, or was that more something that the writers just kept to themselves? I think it was something that was scented in the air, but nothing ever... Uh, you know, uh, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, no. And I would never use that as a, you know, okay, this is the Yojimbo moment, or this is a, you know, a, no, no. No, the film, you play your character, and you live in the circumstance in the world you're in. The filmmaker, now the filmmaker can pay his homages. I'm a director as well. And I'll have certain things that I want to reference in the film. And I necessarily won't tell the actor, okay, this is a, a little wink to whatever. Why? You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. Maybe when they see it later on, you know, Marty Scorsese does that quite often. And every good director, Spielberg, every great director is is uh, paying homage to someone. Mm -hmm. And there's an energy to your character I think is really interesting in that he is, when you look at the kind of the lineage of Bond villains, he's a very menacing, dangerous character, very violent character. And there's a real balancing act, I find, with, like, the Bond franchise. They are pretty mainstream family entertainment to a certain degree, right? And they are movies that are constantly rewatched. And I'm just curious about kind of finding the tone for this villain who comes across, as I said, much more dangerous than typical Bond villains, but without kind of tipping over into something that's a little too dark for the material. Well, let's start with the opening act of violence, mm. which is Lupe. Yeah. Okay. So I, I always felt that that was a cat and mouse game. Now, they couldn't do it because of standards and practices. But the whipping of Lucy, uh, of, of, of Lupe, should have been erotic. Ian Fleming loved eroticism, mm -hmm. especially that kind of subtle sadomasochistic eroticism. And I felt mm -hmm. that she should be basically getting off a little bit on, as unpolitically correct as this sounds, as what Sanchez is doing to her. As a matter of fact, she does it because she knows how much does he love me. Mm. And that was something, but they couldn't put that in because it's a little bit. But for me, the other level of that would have been to inundate that layer with Talisa, you know what I mean? To, and make that a little bit of a, uh, a very uh, possessive sexual thing. So Sanchez... You know who Sanchez is, and now you take his girl, 
you want to really try that? Okay. So did Sanchez do an act of violence? Who betrayed him? Right. If loyalty is more important to me than money, who betrayed him? Now you have the DEA, David Hedison, and the other guys now come after me. I'm, I'm about to depart, and they want to take me down. I wasn't doing anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now they stumble into Sanchez's world, and there's reparation that has to be made. You know? Uh, it's almost like, don't forget, it's, it's, it's Della who gets yeah. hurt. Mm. To make Hedison realize what it's like to lose someone you love. That's another underlying theme that people don't understand or don't see it, but Sanchez does. That's why that act of violence was on her and he leaves her him alive. Mm-hmm. Now, so then you have killer, for, you know, every act of violence that, that Sanchez commits is basically done in response to something that was done to him first. And then the suspicion of Anthony Zerby's character, Milton Crest, that Bond created. Sanchez didn't do that. That was that was the mirror image of Bond and the and the villain, where Bond sets up Milton Crest and starts the the house of cards of suspicion with the Sanchez. So I mean, you know, just to get philosophically existential about it, from my own yeah. my own point of view in terms of 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 interpreting a character and justifying how you justify a character's actions, um, as as twisted as it may be, it, it's uh, still a justification. But yeah, as a family entertainment, I thought it was also a time to, uh, that's a real threat in the world, and it still is today. Mm-hmm. More deaths on fentanyl and everything else in the crisis, and these guys running countries today in Mexico. Remember, you're only president for life. It's still mm-hmm. today. So how are you going to make fun of that issue? How are you going to, you know, camp that up? Mm. Well, it, it brings up an interesting topic of, of License to Kill being, you know, the the hard 15 rating it got here in the UK. I'm not sure what the US's rating was. It's probably somewhere similar. But the, the, the heaviest rated Bond film for sure. Was that a conscious effort on set? to have that rating from the start from when you joined the production or was that something that happened along the way? Well, I knew that there was going to be, no, no, they had, they, look, they would have cut it out. Wouldn't they have? They're smart. Mm. Cubby's Cubby's smart. John Glenn's, these are brilliant filmmakers. They know, you know what I mean? They know where they're pushing the envelope for bond. They wanted to push the envelope for bond into the nineties mm. where films were becoming much more realistic and much more agitated. And now we have, we're even beyond that, you know? And um, so it was, it was a, it was a movement into, you know, forward times. And I think also Timothy, uh, uh, his, his interpretation of wanting to bring Bond into, back to Ian Fleming and not these, you know, the world out there is difficult. It's not all fun and games. And you still have the fun and games of Bond in spite of the reality aspect to License to Kill. Did you did you feel much of a sort of push and pull on the set trying to reach that level of violence without going too far and sort of a collaborative process? Was it easy to find that line when you were making the film? Yeah, well, yeah, because the 
the director commandeered yeah. that. They, they, he understands that. You know, nobody's going to really, uh, you know, what are you going to do? You know, you film stuff and then, and John Glenn being a terrific editor knows where to push it. And they pushed it where they had to go, you know, and they pulled back when they had to for whatever standards and practices wanted. And they're very, very aware of, of making Bond timeless. Now, look at, look at the timelessness. License to Kill, how many years later? Yeah. How many years? 30 years later? Just over 30, yeah. Just over 30 years, and it's, it's more relevant today than it was then, in a way, don't you think? No, no, you're right. Or no? no I say you're right. I, I think it's far more prescient and uh, far more of a reflection of what's happening around us as opposed to something like Moonraker. You know, I mean, but, but anyway, but it's still, it's looked at now as a, you know, uh, differently than it did when it first came mm. out with more, uh, uh, I think, more uh, appreciation and um, at least things that I see. I see things, too, that people, you know, you'll have that all over the place. Everyone will have a difference of opinion on things. Um, but, uh, you know, you've had pretty intense stuff with in, from Russia with Love with Robert Shaw. Mm -hmm. You know, that fight scene was very believable in the, you know what I mean, in the, uh, in the train and those different, you know, there's always... And Bond always got criticized for, you know, misogynistic stuff, which is such crap, because they they created some of the strongest female characters uh, in, in films. Mm -hmm. You know, there was always a, a a woman that was able to be strong and sexy and had power, and uh, you know the, the you know also tongue in cheek. You know some of it. Sure. Yeah, but that that remains to be seen in terms of. Uh, the uh, yeah, I think I think they had a handle on all of that. Mm. Well, you mentioned John Glenn, uh, previous guest on the show, and he had nothing but nice words to say about you when we spoke about License to Kill. And it's nice to hear it's reciprocal. What was it like working with John? Any sort of memories from the set, anything like that? Oh, just the the, the bath he created on the set, the circumstances that you know, just so warm and welcoming and and easy to live in. It wasn't. A lot of films, sometimes you can go onto a set and uh, you, it, it fights against the character. Mm -hmm. It's actual struggle to play your character because the circumstances are so the antithesis of what it should be. And this year, it was, it was absolutely spot on, you know, and that's that whole team that's worked together for many years. They, they, they're very, very, uh, you know, tremendous artists. And also, uh, John has a great sense of humor, um, great enthusiasm, and even uh, uh, an ear and a, uh, a keen eye. He has a keen eye. If you if you you've met John, you've talked to him. Mm -hmm. uh, he's not a gregarious, boisterous individual. He's a very measured kind of sincere human being. You know what I mean? You, you 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 get an honesty from John. I remember there was one time we were on the set in the casino of Isthmus, and we were doing the scene. I've told the story. You may have heard it or not. But I'm doing the scene, and I'm you know, and I hear whispering. Fantastic! Look at that. It's incredible. See what he does just with an eye movement. Alex, get in closer. Get tighter. Get tighter. 
It's so beautiful. It's amazing what he does. And I'm acting along, and I'm, you know, going, huh, look at that. Look how I'm doing. <laughs> I'm so brilliant. I'm such a marvelous actor. I just, look at this. The director's there and the camera. They want more close-ups. This is it. This is my Gloria Swanson moment. <laughs> you know, Mr. DeMille. And uh, he, he got cut. And John goes, it was fantastic. Unbelievable. So great. And the crew has a little bit of brouhaha. And he goes, he comes over to me. He goes, absolutely fantastic. You're so beautiful. Look at you. You're a natural. You're a natural. And he's talking to the iguana. <laughs> that was John's. I, I, I looked at him. What? The iguana? And he laughed and howled. He loved that moment. He loved doing that to me. He's a great send-upper. Well, that cues me up very well. My sister is a massive iguana fan. She had one for many years named Jade, and she had a question for you. She would just love to know about working with the iguana scene to scene. The iguana loved me. Hmm. The iguana, the iguana trusted me. Look, we have. I wish they put the more outtakes in there because there's a moment when I, the iguana comes to my ear and I, what? And I start having a conversation with him. They put a little section in there. I go, really? Well, you're sure about that? Uh, thank you. And I have this little conversation with the iguana. The iguana loved me. It was very, 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 we bonded. I bonded with my iguana. But he didn't like Talisa at all. Oh. So Talisa, get that thing away from me. <laughs> the iguana would, <laughs> that was a real thing. Because the iguana did not like, whether it's her perfume or whatever it was, the iguana did not respond to Talisa. It was mm. a little bit hostile toward her. And I should have listened to the iguana telling me the truth. <laughs> As you could see, she wound up with its necklace <laughs> at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Remember? <laughs> I mean, that's John Glenn's humor. Yeah, yeah. People talk about the winking eye. I talk about the iguana's necklace on her <laughs> on her hand. You know what I mean? That's, she had my, my iguana killed along with me, you know. <laughs> James! I, I'd never considered the uh, the fate of the iguana, but yeah, I guess uh, I guess it didn't make it. No, my poor iguana didn't make it. Or, or she released it into the wild. Sure. There should have been maybe a shot of the iguana going off into the wild or weeping over my grave, over my burn, well, you couldn't, but my poor iguana. I think, I think in like a, in an older Bond film with say uh, Roger Moore, you would have seen the iguana go to like your grave or something like that and just sort of sit next to it. I could really see that. <laughs> and then you get the winking yeah, fish yeah. just to end the film. Then it would be, yes, would be it. yes. Uh, that would be very you, good. You mentioned sort of the camaraderie and the sort of the attitudes on set being quite healthy set. And you mentioned some practical jokes earlier on in our discussion. I've heard some legends of practical jokes. Uh, could you share any that happened? Well, I shared one of them with, mm -hmm. the, with the iguana. And the, yeah, there were always uh, some kind of joke going on, something going on. Uh, we were in, I think, Mexicali. I forget exactly where. And um, Benicio and I, again, were in the makeup trailer. And we're sitting in the makeup trailer. And we're just BSing each other, you know, getting ready for the shot. Because it wasn't, you know, you have those those shots that are just 
you know, we call, you call it no acting required. You know what I mean? You have to walk from right. A to B, but it's not like you have pages of dialogue. And mm-hmm. I learned that from uh, Gregory Peck. He used to write in his script on scenes uh, that he'd have to study. And then other scenes he'd say, uh, N-A-R. And I remember asking him, what is that? No acting required. <laughs> so it was the, uh, so yeah, we, so we were sitting there and Anthony Stark comes in mm. and, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a practical joker. I grew up on films doing practical jokes since the first one I did with Sinatra and all those guys, you know, it was a lot of camaraderie and stuff. So Anthony comes in. And um, there's a cork, a burnt cork on the, the counter that makeup artists use to do shading sometimes, just subtle shading. If they don't have, they can burn the cork and you can put that on there and it can shade or darken a gray hair or whatever it is in a pinch. So it was just sitting there on the thing and Anthony comes in and we're talking. He goes, oh, what's this? And I think, oh, gosh, put, put, put that away. Put that down. He goes, why, what is it? I go, it's uh, ash. He goes, ash. I go, yeah, smell it. And I put it up to his nose, and he goes like this, and I go, and I wipe it on his nose, and now the burnt cork is all over his nose. <laughs> and he got very upset, very upset. <laughs> he turned very red <laughs> and got panicky about it and upset. And later that night, we're going to dinner. And Barbara comes down and goes, Robert, what did you do to poor Anthony Stark? I go, what did I do? I did not, nothing. What do you mean? What I did? It was. A, it's a joke. It's. A, it's. You know. I. So there was that. The next thing, John Glenn. Robert, what did you do to Anthony? He's upset. He was. He was very upset. Miss Swan, telling Barbara and all. What did you do? I said, John. For God's sakes, John, all I did was the cork. I says, here it is. It's ash. And he goes to sniff it, and I did that to it. And John smiled and laughed a second. But that was a practical joke. That, that, And I'm sorry, Anthony, if you watch this. I bring that story up quite often. But that helped motivate me for the line, time to start cutting overhead. Mm, right. <laughs> well, it seems like there was a lot of freedom on the set, like to – give ideas and whatever and a lot of them seemed wound up informing your character i was curious if there's any ideas you perhaps pitched that just didn't happen ones you would have liked to have seen but didn't manage to make into the movie no not that i recall wow yeah not that i recall because you know if you can if you look at a film through a director's point of view as well not just Mm -hmm. the part and if you're skilled at improv you know when or when not to get in the way of things and what perimeter. Some actors don't. Some, so it's a, it's a clumsy, it's, it could be a clumsy process. But if you're sculpting, if you're painting in a different way, and, you know, you're, you, you um, yeah, so, no, there was, you know, even the relationship with me and Benicio, I said I want it to be uh, tactile, you know, tactile. That's why the, the stroke of the cheek and stuff show the warmth of a Latino culture that, is not homophobic, but you can express emotion, you know, and, um, the, um, the, the whole, you know, the, 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 the underbelly and a lot of those are secrets that you're doing and people don't know necessarily what you're, what you're, what you're, uh, uh, but no, there, there was nothing, 
uh, even one line reading. I think one 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 line. I wanted to say, and I, I'm pretty sure I recommended the line: "Loyalty is more important to me than money." I think that was a, mm. a key thing. That was a key thing for the for the for the character. But the um, when we're at my in Acapulco. Mm-hmm. And Tim and I are out there having tea. And uh, the line I have is I can assure you, everyone in my organization is 100% loyal. Is my line, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I wanted to add, but I still suspect everyone. Ooh. Because I, I wanted to add that, and yeah. they didn't want me to add it. They they refused to let me add that, and uh, and then the the line with uh, I I don't remember I think I then put it into when Keller asks me how did you know because I know things you know what I mean that I think I, I and I forget sometimes you know what I mean I'd have to look at the original script yeah and see where I. The, the, that, but it was so well developed. They were developing it and tailoring it beautifully. Michael Wilson, uh, who was doing that work with Maybaum. It was a well-oiled. It was a well-oiled machine by that point when they were making the bomb film. So I can see how they'd have the reins on it. But you mentioned the main man, Timothy Dalton, just then, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you just a little bit about what it was like to work with him on the film and your experiences, you know, collabor- collaborating with Tim. Well, he's great. Tim is wonderful. When we first had our meeting, we looked at each other and started to laugh. Mm. And that was the first meeting that we had also in the film. If you look at that, problem solver, more of a problem eliminator. Uh, right. I travel, well-traveled man. Blah, 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 blah. And then we just look at each other <laughs> and we start to laugh. That's what we did when we first met each other, that moment. And then... We recreated that, I think, there, whether knowingly or unknowingly, from his point of view. But I remembered, this is like our first meeting, so let's not. Put, we should put this here, and we both probably just instinctually felt that because here we are now meeting. And one of the things I think is really interesting about *License to Kill* is that, of all the Bond films, it's probably the one where the protagonist and, and antagonist spend the most time together over the course of the story. So it like really pays off when you get to that big action scene at the end and you have your fight together, which feels more like physically kind of visceral than some of the Bond films that came before it. But I would just like to know about working with Tim and, you know, John Glenn and the stunt team to realize that and kind of boost it a little bit more in intensity and emotion. Well, they were all, you know, it was all inbred in the whole story. Don't forget the revenge story now has to have its denouement and its explosion. And um, mm. <clears throat> the Romeo, the Julianne brothers did these stunts and the big tanker, tanker trucks. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, that was all culminating in, in, that, in those moments. And then finally, you could have had everything. Don't you want to know why? And there's the lighter, you know? And uh, so there's a, it's full circle at that moment. You know, the hesitation of that, Sanchez still had was reluctant that he he saw an equal mm. in the organization that he could relate to because nobody else there was around was that and why you know what I mean why would you throw it all and uh, uh, 
<laughs> so, I mean, there's a, you know, I don't know if that answers your question. It does, yeah. And I think one thing that just kind of popped into my mind I thought would be interesting was when you look at the character of Sanchez and you, you know, there is kind of that d dark mirror aspect of Sanchez and Bond. Do you think with a simple twist of fate that Sanchez would have been a good double O agent? Yeah, she could have been recruited. Mm -hmm. You know, they could have probably said, look, I want to make you a deal, Sanchez. You can still operate, but we want to know this whole organization. We want to know what's going on. What's the underbelly of it all? And Sanchez could have been a double agent. Why not? A double O double agent. Double O double agent. I like that. He could have been inside the organization and also been uh, drafted. Would have been a nice little twinkle, wouldn't it? Yeah. An interesting, uh, an interesting end point for the film, certainly. Different as well. That would have been nice. Yes. I. Yeah. Well, looking at License to Kill, and you know, one thing I just wanted to say is you're so engaged with people on Twitter about the film. You're, you're clearly proud of what you did with the film. Why do you think it has such a strong legacy among Bond fans? Well, because it's a uh, the first horse of a different color. Mm. And uh, it uh, people love Timothy. They love Bond. And uh, I think they love, the, in the retrospect, seeing seeing the uh the evolution of where it came from and and feeling that it was misinterpreted or mis underappreciated mm -hmm. initially and now giving it the attention or the uh so i like that i like because I, I i felt it was a good film i felt it was a good bond film i felt that mm -hmm. you know th there were other forces in terms of when it was released it was a summer release you had lethal weapon license the, uh, the, the 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 Batman and mm -hmm. some other things coming out at that time, and perhaps it would have been better if had they given it a November release or an October release, like they normally do in the Bond films, right? Yeah. And um, so I think that that was an issue, and MGM was in a confused state. Yeah. At the time. I also think uh, when did Never Say Never Again come out? 83. 83. So prior. Um, and, you know, let me just tell you this. I was on a lot of big sets with a lot of big producers and directors. And in the motorhomes, they're watching Bond films. And they're referencing Bond films. Every, every single one. There's not one that I know of that doesn't say, remember that sequence? And they'll be playing it. And showing it to stunt guys, and showing it to this, and showing it to that, and uh, you know, every uh, they, they all either want to be Bond or a villain or a Bond girl, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. so it's a uh, it's interesting, but I think it uh, no, I like look at any anyone I'm engaged in that appreciates the work we do here, mm -hmm. you know, and the uh, it's the last film of Cubby and Dana Broccoli. And Richard Maybaum, you know, the last of an era in that thing. And it, it uh, you know, there was something about that as well. We, um, we did a vote. We did a vote recently about the Mount Rushmore of Bond villains. And the feedback was, I mean, your name was head and shoulders above the rest. 
Hmm. which I think that's nice to know you you deserve to be on there from my opinion too if it, if that stands for anything but the question I put towards hmm. you there you there Robert is who would you put alongside you on the Mount Rushmore Bond villains See, you're asking me another. you've got Sanchez you've got Sanchez already who's the other three I, I being there I I, I don't want to I don't want to weigh in on that mm. I don't want to weigh in on that I I find it um um, but there's many that, you know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, many. I, I like, you know, of course, I like Robert Shaw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like, you know, I like him. I, like, I mean, there's a lot of, but it's hard to say. I mean, it's hard to say for me. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. 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 I, I, I enjoy them and it's up for the audiences to, to kind of pick who they, who they enjoy. Who are your guys? Me, uh, I would. I'll give you one because you said Robert Shaw, so we'll add him. We'll, we'll add that. I would go for. I really like Silver in Skyfall. I think that's one of the, yes. the better written ones we've had in the modern era. I'd say. Yes. 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 Can one from you? Javier. Was it Javier? Javier Bardem. Yeah. Yes. And I really like uh, Sean Bean's Alec Trebellion in Goldeneye. Okay. Yeah. Also, another dark Bond figure. They both are, yes, technically speaking. Yes. They're both agents that uh, yeah. turn bad. So there's some, yeah. Actually, and I would say Robert Shaw is the same. Yes. Well, what do you think is the secret behind the success of Sanchez? Something that is relatable in him. There is a, there is a relatability in Sanchez, even within his improv, you know, even with his, his world. There's something human, yeah, about him, and um, I think uh, I think there might be might be that his humor, you know, he, there's a that always gets somebody, and uh, yeah. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents, keeping the lights on at Spy Hard's HQ ain't cheap, and frankly, nor is feeding the school of attack piranhas. So we need your help. Roger that, Scott. Only at the Spy Hards Patreon can you gain access to exclusive shows like Agents in the Field, which tackles non-spy films starring your favorite spy icons, and The Debrief, where we channel our inner solitaires and predict how the big spy movie news of today will impact tomorrow. So make like a Treadstone agent and activate your Patreon membership at patreon.com slash spyhards today. Cam... Tell the people what we have in our sights this week. Get ready for some teenage angst because we are going to flash back to Tom Cruise's first big box office hit, 1983's Risky Business. Cue up that old time rock and roll. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy chinks. I kind of want to pivot away from License to Kill, if you don't mind a little bit, because I want to talk about music. Yes, I know you're a musician, and I, I'm a very bad musician myself. So I kind of wanted to just chat the breeze a little bit <laughs> with you. Bond and music is interconnected. It, it's a very important part of the Bond legacy. Is the music tied to it? Just leading us into the music discussion, is there a favorite Bond song of yours? Well, Goldfinger is just an iconic. Yeah, it's hard to beat. Shout out! Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, I remember when I was a kid. 
who didn't stop singing Goldfinger, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And Shirley Bassey's interpretation of that song, you know? And um, there were so many terrific Bond themes. I, I, I'd have to play all of them. And one that I think is going to not go down well now is From Russia With Love. Yeah, sure. And it's a good song, but it doesn't go down now because of what's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? So it would be a hard song to, to kind of like, unfortunately, because it's a good song. It's a good vocal by Matt Run- Monroe. And, uh, but there's a lot of, you know, I like, uh, I mean, License to Kill is a good song, you know. I stand by that one. I stand by that song. It's really good. Very underrated. Yeah, License to Kill is, 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 a, is a very strong. Uh, and um, yeah, there's, there's quite a few. I mean, you hear that stuff. Who's the one that, there's so many. I don't know mm-hmm. them all. I don't remember them all. Now, you have recorded, you know, albums. Have you ever considered covering a Bond song? Yes. As a matter of fact, I was at Capitol Records recording my album. And I forget who was there. Was it Al Schmidt, who was my engineer, was doing an engineer for one of the men that were responsible for the Bond themes. There wasn't Michael Kamen or somebody, Hmm. but there was some, I forget who it was, some big composer or some big musician guy. And I says, I would love to do an album. Bond villain sings Bond. Hmm. And, uh, and this was in 2010, you know, something pick a 10 songs, 10 Bond songs and put my spin on them in a certain way would be very interesting. But, you know, that's something, uh, you know, just an idea. You've uh, you've sold uh, two CDs to me and Cam at least, so we, we'll, we'll we'll be buying it. Don't <laughs> worry about that. I have a third one coming up soon next year. Oh, nice. Yeah. Where did the uh, the love of sort of music come from? Because you did a, I think your first album was a the cover of sort of Snarcha tracks. So where's that sort of sprung from, really? Well. First off, in an Italian-American family, there were two figures, the Pope and Sinatra, mm. and not necessarily in that order. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the reason being because Sinatra uh, did a lot for the uh, – he was the first artist to come out against – one of the first big artists to come out against anti-Semitism and racial bigotry. Mm-hmm. And so it was a, a, a big thing in the Italian-American community because Italians were um, – at the turn of the century of the 1900s, the Italians were, uh, as English and Irish and many other people were, they were denigrated. They were, you know, spit on and 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 uh, uh, given vile uh, names and everything else. But they rose above it and rose above the victimology. They didn't. And people like Sinatra, you know, those guys fought against that while fighting for uh, the. Uh, black artists mm-hmm. getting their dignity during the day um, and the anti-Semitism, as I said. So that was it. And also now you had an Italian that wasn't just playing the gangster, but he was playing the romantic lead and the comedy and, you know, as Dean Martin then became and many others followed. But he was a bit of a groundbreaker in the 1930s, late 1930s, early 1940s. Uh, film and music. So I love that music. My family liked that music, but we also loved mm-hmm. the opera. So I was 
training to be an opera singer as a young kid. I went first place New York State School Music Association wow. for New York, a solo competition. And then I um, did the same thing for acting and uh, uh, was studying with uh, uh, a nun, Sister Gabriel Gerard, Ann Joyce at the time. Her name was Sister Ann Joyce. She got me my first, uh, uh, Sister Frances Mary, my first uh vocal coach which was an opera singer on long island and i studied and i loved singing and um, but i loved acting and i put the singing aside for a while and then did my first film with frank sinatra sure yeah in 1977 contract on cherry street now frank was also friends with cubby broccoli so there was a thing when they were deciding the studios were deciding who was going to, they were getting into the fray in terms of the bond, who was going to be the bill, sure. the villain. Cubby already said, it's you, but he was getting pressure from some of the, whatever it is. And Sinatra said, go with the Italian kid. What's wrong? Mm. You know what I mean? So that was it. And, and that was from my friendship with him. Um, I then did a film called The Dukes, 2008. Myself, Chaz Palminteri, Peter Bogdanovich, and a beautiful English actress, Maria Margulies, mm -hmm. plays our aunt in this film and I sing one song in it, but everybody said, why don't you go back to singing? And I sang it. It was about a doo-wop group. Mm. It's a cute film. You should see it. It's called the Dukes. And, um, then the head of Disney music, Bob Cavallo, uh, I said, you know, I want to go back to music. I think, who do you recommend? And he said, Gary Katona without batting an eye. And I went to this guy, Gary Katona, who was in Los Angeles, and I started studying with him for three years. And we then put together this demo and uh, got it produced by Phil Ramone, who's one of the big film producers. And um, was, he died now. He produced all the Billy Joel, Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Barbara Streisand, legendary guy. And uh, the album charted and uh, started doing concerts around the world. So it was my love of not wanting to do the opera anymore because the demand of that is so but feeling that there was a void in the great american songbook sure and uh, mm. i wanted to to go and and start to uh, interpret and bring to what i could because there had been nobody that was that had the film career nor the that sinatra had or the tough guy image to, to those mm. songs you had crooners but there's a certain dramatic edge you can bring to the songs, you know. Anyway, so I felt I could contribute, and that was, and that's what I've been doing, besides the acting. And you know, you talk about your relationship with Sinatra, and you mentioned someone a few moments ago, which was Dean Martin. And we've talked actually a lot on the show about Dean Martin lately. We've been covering the Matt Helm. Matt films. Helm, oh yeah. Yeah, and I would just love to know some of your insights on Dean Martin. If you ever met him or any stories? I did meet him. His daughter is a friend of mine, mm -hmm. Dina. But I met Dean many years ago um, at a place called Da Vinci's, and I met him briefly at the Polo Lounge in Beverly Hills. And he was just a very nice person. Didn't have much conversation with him because at that time his son had passed, and he was mm, yeah. he was a little different uh, when that happened. Yeah. And uh, a light went out, you know? To an extent, I would think, but but even as uh, who didn't love Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, 
those films were huge films. They were the biggest stars in Hollywood at the time or around the world. And then mm-hmm. the, um, uh, the Dean Martin show and the Dean Martin roasts, he had such an ease and, and just a wonderful, he made everything look easy. Everything looked easy. And, uh, uh, he was just, a you know, there's a funny story about Dean Martin. I guess that typifies his personality in a way, in some way. That there was a big party at his house, whether it be a New Year's, there was some event, and everyone from the neighborhood was invited to his party. All the neighbors were there. And at a certain hour, around 10 o'clock, there was a knock at the door, and there was the police. And the police came and said, Excuse me, we have to shut you down. And they looked around, the, you know, the wife and other guests said, what, everybody's here. Who could, possibly, who could possibly have called the police to shut down the party? And uh, we can't tell you that. He says, you have to tell us, please. All I'll tell you is this, the call came from within inside your house. <laughs> and Dean Martin had gone to bed at 10 o'clock and called the cops <laughs> on his own party to stop his party. <laughs> That's the best way to end the party. That is fantastic. (laughs) Right? Get everybody out. You know, he went upstairs quietly, (laughs) called the cops. And, uh, you know, so they had these guys. That's why it was Lauren Bacall who coined the term Rat Pack, if you know this or not. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. But the Matt Helm films, all those were, you know, that was their attempt at the bonding thing, you know. It's certainly an attempt at that. It's something. They're, 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 yeah, I mean, it's a fun. Yeah, they're 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 fun little things, aren't they? they're you know, they're, uh, they're not quite bonds, but they're yeah. fun in their own way. In like a, they're fun. It's like my man Flint in those James Coburn films. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same. Well, I've I've got two questions left for you, Robert, and I want you to go enjoy your evening afterwards. The first question: Is there a piece of work in your filmography, be it as an actor, director, anything like that, that you think didn't get enough love that people should go and check out? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think they should go check out The Dukes. Mm-hmm. I directed the film The Dukes. Uh, and I think it's a very good, it's a fun film. It's a fun uh, film that people would like. And um, another film that I recently directed, uh, people may not like, but it's an interesting picture. Uh and uh, it stars an English actor who I have deep respect for, who's been kind of uh, criticized a bit in, in, in London for his beliefs. But he's a terrific person, very sincere guy. Uh, it's called My Son Hunter. Mm-hmm. And it's about Hunter Biden and the laptop. And it, based on all, you know, researched material, we I shot that in Serbia, and Lawrence Fox plays Hunter Biden, and it gives you a peek. And John James, terrific actor, who was in Dynasty, mm-hmm. plays uh, Joe Biden, and he he's he's a. If there's any criticism, it's you know why is Joe Biden so healthy looking? I didn't want a sickly Joe Biden. I wanted someone that exuded a certain kind of because he's been in politics 50 years. The guy knows his way around and he shouldn't be just written off as some feeble minded human being. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and uh, the drug addiction of Hunter. I don't demonize that, but we do see the the alleged corruption and the inside dealings with the Ukrainian mafia and the Chinese spy chief of uh, the spy chief of China and other other things that wouldn't be so easily acceptable. Uh, and uh, it's a it's a good film. It's a fun film. I remember the movie American Hustle, mm-hmm. and I wanted to do something like that, American Hustle and uh, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Now, I don't have that budget, but the film is entertaining. And how are you finding sort of directing? Are you, are you, are you liking striking the balance with acting, or are you doing directing more now? What do you sort of prefer at this time? No, no, I like it, everything. I have a new TV series we're working on right now that I'm going to Nice to, to the MIP TV. Mm-hmm. To uh, called Paper Empire, which is a great, uh, uh, it's a groundbreaking show. It's myself and Denise Richards, Wesley Snipes, uh, Kelsey Grammer, Cuba Gooding Jr., Ann Archer, um, Michael Nuri, um, some terrific actors in it. Carol Alt. We just had Denise on the show, so that's uh, serendipitous that uh, you, you you're both there. So there you go. Yeah, she plays my wife. Ah, there you are. In the TV series. I've had the husband and wife in now. That's nice. <laughs> had you both yes, in. Yes, yes, um, yes. Well. How'd she do? How'd she do? Well? She, wonderful. Wonderful. Couldn't, couldn't say yeah. good enough words yeah. about her. She's uh, lovely and she loved her time with Bond as well. Yeah, so she's a wonderful. And you say you've got an album on the way? Third album coming out? Yeah, yeah. We have a new thing coming out uh, next year. I, I just have to go back in. And finish. I have most of the songs. I got about seven songs. I got to go back and do four. Mm. So when I get to New York, because I moved out of LA because it's turned into such a depressing state now. Mm. Is there any like theme to the album or anything you're kind of going for? Because you had the Sinatra album before. It has more of the American songbook. Sure. Uh, but it, it it it's it's a uh, because it's look at Sinatra covered Bing Crosby. Yeah. Everybody covered the American Songbook. Mm-hmm. But what I did was, on the road to romance, Davi Singh Sinatra, I, because I, he gave me my start in show business, basically. And also, when people talk about Sinatra, I know there's a lot of dark documentaries on him and the underworld that come out of England a lot of times, <laughs> oddly enough. But I wanted to talk about his contribution, not only to music, but to society. And that's what I had done in my shows and when I tour and also bring the music. Uh, if you play a cut or two of my thing, you know, you can, people can hear. Um, Quincy Jones, basically, uh, I have his blessings. Uh, he left a beautiful quote when he came to see my show and listen to my album. And um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be, I'm, I'm, I'm deciding what to call it. Mm. Now, I have an idea, but I don't want to say because if I say it, then somebody else, oh, I might do that, you know? <laughs> no. So you got to be you got to be careful. We're, we're spies here. We understand keeping things, uh, keeping yes, things Yes, you are spies. Yeah. Yes. Well, that leads me beautifully on to my final question for you, Robert Davy. This has been asked to everyone that's ever been on the show, including Denise Richards and including your director, John Glenn. Robert Davy, what is your favorite spy movie of all time? There is, uh, I, I, I like The Third Man. Yeah. I like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Mm-hmm. I like um, 
Ryan's Express, Von Ryan's Express. Wow. Yeah. I like I like the Manchurian candidate. And um you know, there's um there's a plethora of different Right now I'm watching a series that people should watch called The Old Man. Okay. The old Man. With Jeff Bridges. What's that playing on? And this it's on Hulu. Okay. It may be some other platforms, but he plays a ex CIA kind of dark operative. Mm-hmm. And he's a, an old man now, and he's 30 years later, and the, the shit hits the fan, so to speak. Hmm. And there's a lot of interesting, intriguey stuff that's happening. I think it's very well done, well written. Um, and it's. Uh, uh, what is your favorite spy movie? We're still trying to figure that out. Uh, I, I think if I was going to pick one off the top of my head right now, it's probably something like North by Northwest. Right, right. Yeah. I'm, kind of, I'm kind of in the same boat, actually. North by Northwest is the one that jumps immediately Hitchcock, to the forefront yeah. of my mind. But a lot of a lot of people will also mention Bond ones will jump out. You'll hear License to Kill. You'll hear Goldfinger. You'll hear Casino Royale. Um, yeah, often Bourne stuff gets mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's so many. You know, oh, there's yeah. a whole genre of things. It's hard to say. It keeps us busy, for sure. Yeah. Have you ever seen The Manchurian Candidate, the the original one? Yes, I have a couple times. Love it. With Sinatra? I'm actually very much looking forward to watching The Naked Runner, which I haven't seen before. Another Sinatra one. Yeah. Naked Runner. I saw that. I, yeah. I haven't seen that in a while. It's it's interesting your your picks were very sort of grounded spy movies where I'd say you were probably the uh, you're the man who brought to life perhaps one of the most grounded Bond villains of all times. So it's interesting that your sort of spy connective tissue is all to do with being grounded and realistic. Yeah, I have that. You know, hey, look yeah. at it. I even liked Red Sparrow. I mean, that was mm, a good film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Red yeah. Sparrow was very interesting. You know, in a, in another whole erotic way, mm. with uh, knowing that that happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I feel like I could do another three hours talking to you about, you know, Die Hard, Goonies, Predator 2, and I probably wouldn't do any of it justice, but I want you to go and have a lovely evening. So all I want to say is, Robert Davy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the love you have for the world of James Bond and for the community. We know it. We know you are genuinely love us talking with us and engaging with us and love the work that you did. So thank you for all of it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you guys for keeping that spy harding alive and uh, your podcast and, and, and commandeering fans together around the world to uh, pay tribute to a the most successful series of films in the history of cinema. Godspeed, and, and, I, and I hope that you do a lot more. Awesome. There you go, folks. That was our chat with Mr. Robert Davy. What a chat it was. Thank you, Robert, for taking the time to speak with us. And if you like what you heard on this interview... We have a ton in our back catalogue. Everyone from Colin Salmon to Denise Richards, Bond alumni galore, Mariam Darbo, the director of License to Kill, John Glenn, plus directors, cinematographers, screenwriters all across the spectrum of spy movies. So make sure you hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. But Cam, let's talk about it. Robert Davy, what a guy. Yeah, this was a fantastic chat. And I mean, Robert has been very active on Twitter. Um you know, writing back and forth with fans who are appreciators of License to Kill and have loved what he's done with the character of Sanchez, but also 
the world has caught up with this movie. You know, License to Kill famously was not a particularly successful Bond film when it was released in 1989. And since then, there's been so much appreciation for what they were trying to do. This does feel very much like a you know, predecessor to what Daniel Craig would be doing a handful of years later. And the character of Sanchez has so much dimension to him. And it was really interesting to hear Robert just talk about all of the complexity that he saw in this character and all of the ideas he was bringing to the table and just his process for creating this character, this very iconic character on screen. Yeah, it, it, was, uh, it blew my mind just how seamless the whole process was and how sort of fully realized the the character of Sanchez was from the get-go. It wasn't one of those characters they sort of found on the set and pieced together. It really was a great sort of double header of great direction from John Glenn, previous guest on the show, and great acting from Robert Davi, really understanding what was required of him in bringing that character to life. All those meetings with Timothy Dalton beforehand and doing that research, reading the books and, and talking to real life sort of people involved in that world really informed him and produced, I think, one of the most fleshed out, fully realized villains in the entire canon of Bond films. I wonder how much of that had to do with Timothy Dalton, where like Timothy Dalton, when he joined the franchise, he talked a lot about how he really wanted to recapture the spirit of Ian Fleming. Mm. He was someone who had read all the books and was bringing that insight. Timothy Dalton comes across to me as, you know, something of an intense individual, but also someone highly prepared, someone who has ideas and is looking to push, you know, kind of his vision for what the movie he's working on, what he wants it to be. And I wonder if by the time they got to that second one, there was a little more openness to Timothy Dalton's sort of um, approach to the material shaping what the sequel would be and that kind of working with what Robert Davi was bringing like creating that kind of playground to really build a villain from the ground up you know they said they hired him without a script they just wanted to work with him because they'd love this other movie he'd done mm -hmm. and then as it's all put together and he talked about you know the research that went into it the conversations he had with Dalton it just seems like this was kind of a perfect circumstance for creating an iconic villain. Whereas, like, there are some Bond villains, I'm not going to name names, but, like, I would be shocked if there was, like, a lot of preparation and thought put into kind of the building of that antagonist. I definitely agree. I think there's there's far more elaborate Bond villains that, if any, work less, mm -hmm. despite far more work going into it. Like, I don't think a Hugo Drax holds up next to a Sanchez, much as Hugo Drax is, is fun to watch. Yeah, totally. Like, great dialogue. Michael Lonsdale's yeah. a lot of fun. But, like, when you break it down, how much dimension is there to that character versus the Sanchez? Right. And I think we discussed it briefly with him. This is closest to what I think a real-life villain would be in a Bond film. I don't think any other villains. Maybe uh, the chap in Quantum of Solace. Yeah. It's probably another. It's, uh, I forget the, the actor's name. But Dominic Green, wasn't it? Yeah, Do Dominic Green played by Matthew Almerich. There we go. It's in my head somewhere. Yeah, that, that's probably the only other one that maybe could have existed in real life. The rest of them just seemed far too big. Mm -hmm. I, I heard the story before we did the interview, and I did some research ahead of time about Robert doing sort of the casting with the Bond girls. And it was interesting to sort of... I, I think it plays into the character as well, the sort of mirror of a character, because they obviously saw something in him that is very Bond-like because they wanted him to play that role in the casting with the Bond girls, specifically Sanchez's girlfriend. And 
I just, I, I mean, that whole process is interesting because we've already had Colin on the show, Colin Salmon, who did the same thing for three of the Brosnan films. And it's interesting that that, uh, that they sort of do this and they give it out to actors in the film, but not necessarily the Bond. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it actually allowed the creation of Sanchez's world, mm-hmm. where you have him, you know, cast the actress opposite him for much of the movie. And then also listening to him talk about creating the dynamic with all the supporting actors around him. The rogues gallery around Sanchez is like second to none when you start looking at the Bond franchise. You often have iconic henchmen, like you'll get like a Jaws in The Spy Who Loved Me, for example. Mm -hmm. But you don't often have this like murderer's row of character actors surrounding your main villain, where here you had Benicio Del Toro, obviously, but Everett McGill, Don Stroud, Anthony Stark... Um, Anthony Zerbe, and the way that he talks about, you know, going out with those guys, having the kind of camaraderie on set, some pranks going on, mm-hmm. that all kind of works into the energy on screen that I don't know that people really, you know, think about the nuts and bolts when they're watching License to Kill, but there was so much intention going on with the creation of that villain and his world. And it's interesting as well to look at the two Dalton films, because both of them had quite the sort of litany of villains. Yes. But one stuck the landing and the other one really didn't stick the landing. I wonder how much Sanchez was a reaction to the trio of villains in the living daylights. I I couldn't even tell you. I could not tell you distinctly right now the name of the villain in living daylights. Villains. Because there are so many of them. But there's like... But there's also like a few under like sub villain henchmen people in that film too, whereas License to Kill probably has around about the same amount of people in terms of on the antagonist side. Maybe it's a smidge more, but they're all fleshed out. They all have their own purpose in the film, and it feels economical. I wonder how much of it had to do with like with Living Daylights. They want to subvert the concept of like the Bond villain mm. and have multiple people. You know, like this scheme would re- involve multiple participants to be pulled off like and having timothy dalton join the film franchise it's like i don't want to do the goldfinger villain i like the idea of kind of this group of people working on something which is very realistic as well like it's not one guy behind most major schemes there's many people realistic but i don't think it's pulled off in a way that is at least to me personally very satisfying whereas i find with like license to kill i wonder if it was like we want to create an iconic villain but we don't want to do it the old-fashioned way. We still want to stick to this more realistic tone, and thus Sanchez is born. You you did actually, I think before I bring up another topic of the interview, you said about Timothy Dalton having read all the books. Yeah. Which other ones do you think read all the books, or do you think it was only Tim? I think it was only Tim at that point. I think maybe after that, perhaps Brosnan, maybe? I think Brosnan really cared about the character of Bond. If there was going to be a second one, I think it's either him or Daniel. Yeah, like it wouldn't shock me now if any actor who gets cast is going to read all those books. They're they're very readable, very quick. Yeah. Yeah. But I I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he told me Sean Connery had never read a Bond book from cover to cover. Maybe the first one. Maybe like Dr. No or something when he was making that movie maybe uh, definitely not Lazenby or, or uh, I actually I say that about Roger Moore probably has read a couple maybe I mean his movies don't really feel like they're really 
following what Fleming was doing. I I don't know. It's tough to no. say. And and nor are we literary scholars to really debate it too much. But in in terms of the interview itself, I was really keen to know about sort of what that spirit was like on set. And it was really nice to hear from both John back in the day when we had him on the show and from Robert about just that really fun, lively set, but it felt very not controlled that sounds too overbearing but like focused yeah and that there was a lot of creative freedom going on and mm-hmm. you don't necessarily expect that with franchises nope. um you hear constant stories nowadays about these major film franchises that are happening and everyone just kind of feels like they're being crushed by the machinery mm-hmm. uh, of these juggernaut productions uh it doesn't not seem to be the case with license to kill and i think the evidence of that is on screen and i mean he just had Fun stories about the production. I really enjoyed hearing him talk about working with the iguana, which yeah. you know my sister was very excited to hear about that. Um, and yeah, I mentioned her iguana jade, which we had for like 15 years or something. Mm-hmm. I had an iguana myself when I was young uh, named Ricardo. And when he was talking about how the iguana did not like Talisa Soto, that made me kind of like laugh because I remember my first iguana was very persnickety with people and be, could be quite uh, nasty towards them if he didn't like them. Did he like you? He was hot and cold with me. <laughs> real hot <laughs> and cold. He had an attitude, that one. He was uh, a real uh, <laughs> spit and vinegar, whereas Jade, uh, my sister's iguana, was just docile and lovable. I think our relationship is more like your iguana than uh, your sister's. Yeah, you are the natural successor to Ricardo. Oh, lovely. <laughs> lovely. Well, I, I'm just asking you to stop touching me so much, Cam. That's all I'm asking for. But your dewlap is so wonderful looking. I I wish I knew what that meant. (laughs) That's like the beard thing underneath their chin. Oh, well, that's very kind of you, sir. Uh, Something else you uh, want to bring up from the interview? Um, Well, kind of moving off of Bond, hearing him talk about, A, his experiences with Frank Sinatra, but also Dean Martin stories. Mm. Scott, you and I have become fascinated by Dean Martin and I know people have heard us talk about the Matt Helms in our coverage of that entire film series so you go yeah yeah we've heard them talk about people we talk about Dean Martin off the air now like Dean Martin has become this like point of fascination for us I mean it's to the point that when we go to Las Vegas we're trying to find Dean Martin sites to to visit instead of finding more Diamonds of Forever sites we're, we're trying to find Dean Martin sites in Las Vegas and I have definitely been um, paying to uh, download Dean Martin music over the last little while as well. Really? You've been paying for it? I have. I've been buying them off Apple. Yes. Wow. Have you got any favorites at the moment? I mean, Everybody Loves Somebody is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one that I just keep going back to. It's kind of like the standards right now. I am not into the Dean Martin supercuts <laughs> yet. Not the B-sides just yet. Yet. We'll get there. Um, but I also love his song from Rio Bravo, which is so haunting. I, I absolutely mm. love that one. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, to hear Robert tell that story about Dean Martin's house party, I was overjoyed to hear that story. Yeah, that uh, that took me you know, sort of left field there. Well, didn't see that one coming. And when he told the punchline to that story, it felt so Dean Martin. that <laughs> uh, I was like, yep, that makes complete sense. Yeah, and I would also, you know, speaking of music, love to hear Robert do a James Bond music cover album. Sign me up, seriously. Oh, for sure. Like, he's so connected to sort of the Bond world. He feels like the perfect candidate that's also been in a film. 
Mm. I think I think a lot of people would love to hear that. I'd be interested to see what songs he picks. If you guys are any that are originally from a female singer. Yeah, and I mean, they wanted Frank Sinatra for You Only Live Twice. Mm. So it would actually be kind of interesting if he did You Only Live Twice with more of a Frank Sinatra approach to the material. He'd ha- That would be one of the ones he'd have to do. He'd have to, yeah. Yeah, I, I'd absolutely love that. Sign me up. But, you know, it, it's... um. I think just to sort of round us off, again, I am blown away by the people that will say yes to us. They must all be crazy, but I enjoy it nonetheless, having some of these tip-top names in the world of spy movies on the show just to sort of chat about their love for spy movies too. Well, exactly. And we've had some great chats lately, and I'm sure we're going to have more in the future. But we should also just, in addition to thanking Robert for his time, which, again, it's always an honor to have these people come by and talk to us about their experiences making any movie Mm -hmm. but you know this one was a real joy because we are such big fans of the sanchez character but we also just want to give a thanks to ian jacklin who you know tweeted at robert and kind of got the ball rolling on this one i don't know that the interview would have happened at this point in time if it weren't for ian's efforts so thank you very much absolutely ian's been a huge supporter of the show since very early on i speak to him regularly he knows how indebted we are to him for his support but i'll say it on the air once again thank you ian Mm-hmm. yeah indeed so yeah that wraps up our chat with mr robert davy cam the question goes to you sir what are we talking about next week scott i am currently lost in europe i have sent an sos no one's answering i don't know what to do so our programming is going to be a little unusual next week we are releasing another patreon episode for you all to enjoy i think the pink panther went over pretty big and so we are going to release our episode on 1971's dirty harry on the main feed, we've talked about Firefox in the in the past. Over on the Patreon, we've talked about Clint Eastwood a lot. We've covered the entire Dirty Harry franchise, and who knows what we'll do in the future. And we think this would be a really great teaser for those of you out there who are fans of this franchise. And yeah, so tune in next week for our coverage of that 1971 gritty crime classic. Well, absolutely recommend everyone tunes in next week for that what i find more fascinating which i'll just highlight for a second is that you said uh, obviously that the pink panther did really well now what people will not know is we're recording this in the middle of august so <laughs> cam has no idea if it did well at all we may have closed up shop by this point but cam is taking a pump because he is that invested in the pink panther and i'm that invested in dirty harry so your mission folks should you choose to accept it is to go ahead and make our day tune in next week as we take a look at dirty harry Uh, and if you liked what you heard on this episode please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you are listening and if you do not already please make sure you follow us discreetly of course on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners Launder it.